Hello, and welcome to Holmes, Borden, and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. Before I get into the substance of this episode, I want to remind you that what we're hearing is Emma's version. We don't know how much of it's true, and I think we can assume that both Watson and Sherlock took everything she said with a grain of salt. I think a lot of her version that she gave them on that day was consistent with what they thought had happened. Certainly, as far as Moriarty's involvement, that part was consistent. Lizzie's involvement with Moriarty, that part was consistent. But as to Lizzie's actual involvement in terms of her pre-planning or her knowledge as to what had happened, they don't know whether Emma is telling them the truth. And they also don't know whether Lizzie actually told Emma what Emma claims she did. Let's talk about the last 10 minutes of Lizzie's life leading up to the end of the first episode. Let's think for a second about what happened in that 10-minute window before she ran into her own bedroom. It starts with her stepmother dumping 30 years of hatred, anger, resentment, and vitriol onto her. And I'll say that Lizzie, I think, really deserves some of that, but it wasn't pleasant for her to hear. And on top of that, Lizzie had humiliated herself at the start of the conversation, so it made it even more unpleasant and painful. She had heard that her father was disowning her, was turning her out, that the financial security that had been the thing that kept her going for all these years, that that had evaporated, that she was losing every prospect of having a financially secure life after her father died. And then she had witnessed her lover, her boyfriend, rush into the bedroom with a hatchet and attack her stepmother. And then, we'll carry this forward a couple minutes, she's in her bedroom, having fled the guest bedroom, and she's listening to the sound of her stepmother being chopped to pieces. And one thing that occurred to me in terms of this interaction with Mrs. Borden, is that you know when you have an unpleasant argument with somebody, especially if the resentments have been building up for a long time and there's kind of an explosion, it comes to a head, and you know how you want to have the last word in the argument, you don't want to walk away from that argument feeling that the other person has gotten the better of you? I would say that this is the ultimate last word. Chopping your enemy up with a hatchet You can't really do much better than that. So an awful lot has happened to her in the space of 10 minutes. And regardless of how much she was involved, how much she knew about what was going to happen, this would be disturbing or traumatic to almost anybody in that situation. And particularly so if Emma is telling the truth and Lizzie didn't know for certain that this was going to happen. So as might be expected, she's feeling disoriented. She's in a state of shock, some, some version of shock, some kind of shock. I think when we had Dr. Merritt on the program, I think she used the term dissociation, where you're aware, you're conscious of what's going on, but you're in a state of denial or your mind is tuning out certain things. So something really interesting happens. Emma makes a point of mentioning this. And all I have are some notes, sort of fragments, phrases, a few words here and there. Because, of course, Watson's trying to keep up with the narrative. What Watson writes in his notes is that Emma said, at that time, when Moriarty comes into her bedroom, kneels down, looks at her, takes her hands, and starts talking, as she looks at Moriarty, Lizzie says, I felt like I was looking at the face of God, which is a really striking expression or thought or image. And then Watson has a few other words following that, Old Testament, childhood, church. So, 
Even though he doesn't elaborate on this, I have to assume, the only logical explanation I can find for this is that Lizzie, as a kid, had gone to church. She'd gone to Sunday school, just like Emma did, I'm sure. And one of the things they had learned about, especially in those days, was the idea of an Old Testament God, a God who was jealous, who insisted that he be worshipped, that he be loved, who wasn't always fair, who overreact quite often, that his his punishments could be extremely severe throwing Adam and Eve out of paradise, drowning everybody on earth except for Noah and his family. Pretty severe, harsh punishments. And sometimes he could be just plain unfair. As I understand it, he just tormented Job to see how much Job could take. So I think what she was saying was she had this almost psychotic break. She had this brief instant where she had one foot in reality and one foot in this kind of waking dream world. This semi-conscious world that where the brain was sort of misfiring. And it's not that she believed Moriarty was God, but that what she saw in terms of his expression and the set of his features made her think of how she had pictured the Old Testament God. It's just interesting that she would use this phrase. And it's interesting because who knows how any of us would react in a situation where we've just seen somebody killed and also had heard some extremely disturbing news about our family and and our relationship to the family as a whole. Well, we know that Lizzie was somebody who was not particularly emotional, That's what everybody said about her, everybody who knew her, all her friends, her acquaintances. The newspapers remark on it, the books remark on it. She's someone who was able to maintain her composure almost always. So she's able to pull herself together and everything in terms of her personality and her thinking kind of falls back into place. And I think it must have also helped that Moriarty was there and that he seemed completely calm and rational. And I think the message he was giving her also was, if we don't panic, we can get through this. The worst thing we can do is panic and freeze. We have to think carefully, follow through, but there's a way out of this. Now, I think also at this point, even though Lizzie hadn't fully formed the idea, I think she knew already that with Moriarty having killed her stepmother, that her father was almost certainly going to die, that he would need to die, that either their father would die or in the alternative, she and probably Moriarty would be caught. Because think about what her father knows at this point. He knows about the burglary from the year before. He knows she has a boyfriend And he knows that she is probably expecting some really bad news that afternoon. So if he comes back, learns his wife is dead, no matter what Lizzie says, almost certainly he's going to suspect her and there's a very good chance that he's going to the police and he's going to tell them his suspicions. Partly for his own safety, partly to preserve his own life, but partly because he had some love and some loyalty towards his wife. And as much as he loved his youngest daughter, he was on the verge of disowning her anyway. So this would have been the most likely result. This is probably how he would have reacted. And she wasn't willing to give up her future. To She wasn't going to knowingly and willingly walk into a situation where she would end up being convicted and hanged. So I think in some ways it was an easy choice for her. And any love or residual feelings, affection she'd had for her father, that was greatly overwhelmed and drowned out by the other factors which we've just discussed. Even so, Moriarty took a few minutes to explain why he had to, quote-unquote, take care of her father. So he went through the things we've just talked about, and then he said, on top of everything else, your father chose your stepmother over you. He basically turned on you. 
The only reason he did this was because you had fallen in love and had acted on your feelings. What have we done wrong other than kill your stepmother? He didn't treat you fairly. You're justified in doing this to him. And then he said, we're really in a pretty good spot if you think about it. We've done this in a way, or I have done this in a way, or events have evolved in such a way that your stepmother has died first. Your father's not likely to come home until sometime around 11, maybe, maybe a little before. Mrs. Borden will have been dead long enough so that when I take care of your father, doctors will probably be able to establish that Mrs. Borden died first. And if that's the case, then you and your sister inherit everything. Nothing goes to Mrs. Borden's relatives because she predeceased your father. And another problem with letting your father live, on top of everything we've already said, is Number one, he might give a good chunk of his estate away to charity, which means you wouldn't get a share of it. And number two, he might get married again. He's not quite 70. He could easily get married again in the next year or two, and you'd find yourself in exactly the same position you've been in for the last 25 years. So that was pretty much all he said before they started to discuss practical steps. How are we going to handle things? What do we need to do to try to get away with this? And it appears that at this point, Lizzie is feeling under control. She's feeling nervous on the one hand because she knows that she'll have to be brave and lie her way through this. But at the same time, she knows, also knows that she's capable of carrying this off. And Moriarty says to her, so long as I don't get caught, so long as they don't find the murder weapon, so long as they don't find bloody clothes, and so long as we time your father's death into a short, we put it into a short, narrow window in terms of the actual number of minutes, then I think it's going to be almost impossible to convict you. And that's the route we're going to have to take at this point. It's the only real option we have. So let's talk about the practical steps that Moriarty had Lizzie take. And According to Emma, Moriarty was the one who was in charge at this point. He was making all the decisions. And if Emma's version is correct, it certainly looks like Moriarty had been thinking about all of this ahead of time. The first thing he does is he tells Lizzie to go over to her bedroom window, look out, and see if Bridget is washing the windows. And she is. Because as we know, Bridget had not actually started washing the windows right away. She had spoken to the maid who lived next door, the Kelly's maid. And that probably took 10 or 15 minutes. So by the time Mrs. Borden was lying dead on the floor and Moriarty had stripped off the bloody clothes and come in and talked to Lizzie, Bridget had not been washing the windows for more than a few minutes. So knowing that Bridget was outside and knowing that nobody else was in the house, the next thing that Moriarty did was he went downstairs and he locked and bolted the front door. So he slid the bolt across, he turned the deadlock, and he made sure that the spring lock was working. Lizzie had unlocked it that morning when she came down, which was her custom. It's what she always did. And the reason that Moriarty did this was he didn't want Morse to come charging in the front door and running up the stairs. And they needed some time to get out of the way, for him to get out of the way, for Moriarty to get out of the way, and also for Lizzie to know somebody was coming. Moriarty said, you can't let anybody actually get up the stairs. We can't allow anybody to discover your stepmother until your father's dead. So, I'm going to stay up here because this is the safest place for me to hide. And you need to stay up here in case somebody tries to come up the stairs. And by the way, is there any chance that that will happen? Lizzie said, it's possible that my uncle will come back and try to come upstairs, but only if he's left something here. And I don't think he has. Otherwise, he'd have no reason to come back up. And my father and Bridget would never come up unless they were specifically looking for my stepmother. So they have to talk about what they're going to say about the stepmother, about Mrs. Borden's absence. But before we get to that, 
Moriarty had said to Lizzie, after I take care of your father, before you raise the alarm, you need to unlock the front door completely so that everybody will get the impression that I or the killer came and went through that door. There's little chance that anybody's actually going to come up unless they're looking for Mrs. Borden. So then they have to decide what are they going to tell Mr. Borden and Bridget about Mrs. Borden's whereabouts. Moriarty says you should just tell them that your stepmother had to hurry off somewhere. You don't know where she went. You didn't actually see her go. She told you she was in a hurry. She wasn't sure when she'd be back. She might be back for the noon meal, but she wasn't clear. You didn't ask where she was going. That's all you know. And so they had a brief discussion about this, and Lizzie's instinct told her that that wasn't the best way to handle it. Lizzie initially had this gut feeling that the best approach in this situation would be for her to talk about a note. Someone had brought a note, somebody was sick, and even though there was an enormous risk because there was no note and nobody would come forward with it, it was an easy story to stick to. The other story, the initial idea, she went off in a hurry, I'm not sure where, it was squishy. And it was going to lead to many, many questions. If she simply said, she told me she had a note, somebody was sick, I didn't ask who, and off she went, or I thought she went, that's all she had to say. And she could just say, I don't know anything more. She also had already understood or or it had crossed her mind that, and we know this from her telling Alice the night before that she was afraid for her father's safety, that one of the theories that her attorney would be able to argue was that Mr. Borden had some kind of business enemy and that the killer had wanted to get Mrs. Borden out of the house and that this had been part of a ruse, that there really had been a note, but it it wasn't because someone was sick, it was because the killer wanted Mrs. Borden out of the way. So even though a lot of people might think that was unlikely, it was on its face credible, it passed the straight face test. So Lizzie was thinking that as well right from the start, in terms of trying to come up with an explanation or an excuse as to where her stepmother was. Moriarty said, when your father comes back and you're satisfied that he and Bridget are not going to come upstairs, come down, act normal. You really have to come across as if nothing's wrong. Talk about normal things with him. Make sure you tell him pretty quickly that Mrs. Borden has gone out. Tell him whatever your story is. Sounds like you're going to talk about the note. Whatever it is, get it clear in your head and stick with it. Let's hope that Bridget goes upstairs to rest. You're telling me that's her normal routine. I know you've told me that before. Let's assume she goes up around 11. When that happens, try to talk your father into lying down. I'll deal with your father any way I have to, but I'd rather not walk into the sitting room, have him look up, and start shouting. So the best thing to do is for you to get him down on a sofa and then clear out. As soon as he's down on the sofa or as soon as I hear you tell him that you're done and you're headed out, I'll know it's safe for me to come in. I'll wait a few seconds and then I'll come in. When you leave the sitting room or wherever he is, go out to the barn, go up to the loft, walk around and come right back in after 10 minutes. If you don't have a watch and you don't have some way to time it, count to 500 and then come back. When you come back, go right down into the cellar and bolt the bulkhead door because that's how I am going to leave the house. And then after you've bolted it, come back up and raise the alarm. And of course, remember, you've got to unlock the front door. You've got to give the police a reason as to why you're in the barn. Whatever it is, stick with it. When you tell Bridget, when you tell anybody else who comes to the house, neighbors, bystanders, doctors, police, you're going to need to look like you're stunned or horrified or devastated or in some state of shock. If you need to see your father in order to be convincing in that role, then go in and look at him. But don't get blood on yourself. 
whatever you do. This point, Sherlock has some questions for Emma. The first one is, why did she change her story about the barn? First, it was to get tin or iron, and then it was about sinkers. Why? Apparently, the idea of tin or iron was simply what came into her head first, the idea of having a broken screen. But it occurred to her pretty quickly, within a few hours of starting to tell that story, that there was no broken screen. And if the police were smart enough and they were on the ball, they would say, can you show me the screen? Which door is it? Which window is it? So within a day or so, she changed it to sinkers because the sinkers were, that was a story that couldn't be checked the same way that having a broken screen could be checked. Why didn't she give the police the dress she was actually wearing that day? The reason is that she knew almost from the start that she may have gotten blood on the dress she'd been wearing. Even if it wasn't obvious to someone who was talking to her or sitting with her, she understood that if she gave them that dress and it went to a chemist or a forensic expert, there was a chance they would find blood on it. For one thing, when she went down into the cellar, there was no light. It was dark down there. The only light was coming in from the cellar windows. And she was following in Moriarty's footsteps. She may have brushed up against some blood and not seen it. He may have been dripping blood. He may have left blood somewhere. There might have been blood on his hand, blood on his shoes, and she might have rubbed up against it. Remember that the dress she was wearing was too long. That's one of the reasons that she claimed she got rid of it was that it always dragged on the floor. It was like an inch or two longer than it should have been. So she was concerned that it may have may have picked up some blood just through walking around. So that's the primary reason. Why did she tell Bridget and Mrs. Churchill that she thought she heard Mrs. Borden come back? First of all, my sister tends to do things instinctively. If something seems right to her, if she has a gut feeling that this is the right way to do it, she'll do it. She doesn't spend a lot of time second-guessing her decisions. She trusts her judgment. In addition, as I'm sure you've noticed, for instance, the inquest testimony, she takes chances. She always has. It's who she is. And I guess it felt important to my sister to have both of those bodies discovered fairly quickly, to have some confusion, to have some commotion. She was worried that if she didn't get them to look up there, that everybody would be running around the city trying to find Mrs. Borden and that the body might not be found for hours. She might be the one who found the body. She might be forced to find it if she didn't alert other people and get them to go up there and look. And how would she react? She didn't really trust herself to react as if she was horrified, stunned, sad, shocked, She was afraid that she'd have no reaction at all because she didn't particularly care that her stepmother was dead. And if she reacted in that way, that could be a real problem. She also felt that the longer she waited, the more people would be studying her reaction to her father's death and the more they would focus on her reaction when Mrs. Borden was found. And one of the benefits from having the body discovered the way it was is that everybody was in shock. It was a limited number of people in the house at the time. It was Alice, Lizzie, Bridget, and Mrs. Churchill. Sawyer was at the door. But when Mrs. Churchill came down and Bridget came down, they weren't focused on Lizzie's reaction. And it was close enough in time to Lizzie, quote unquote, discovering her father's body that she could just kind of continue to react the same way as she had when she raised the alarm. So it was for those reasons. She also wanted to make sure that Mrs. Borden was found close enough in time to her father being found that they could use the state of the blood. The blood had dried and clotted on Mrs. Borden. It hadn't dried and clotted on her father. 
And it was important that they be able to see this. And the longer they waited, the more trouble or more difficulty potentially they might have in terms of determining who died first. Sherlock wants to know what Emma thought when she got the telegram in Fairhaven. Her first thought was that Moriarty had committed these murders and that he had left Lizzie to take the blame. Sherlock wanted to know when Lizzie told Emma this version of events. Was it as soon as she got home or was it some other time? They didn't talk about it privately until that night, late that night, when they were alone. At that point, Lizzie told her essentially the same version that Emma had told Watson and Holmes. As to why Emma had not gone to the police if she was not involved, if she had no knowledge that this was going to happen, well, obviously she's my sister. I can't do that to my sister. I would never do that to my sister. I'm only doing that now because you're threatening to expose me if I don't tell you and I have to trust that you won't. The other risk was that if I went to the police and told them what I knew and what Lizzie had told me, what incentive would Lizzie have to protect me? She might point the finger at me and say, Emma knew all about this. Now she has cold feet. Now she's panicking. Now she wants to protect herself. Or the police might have suspected me anyway. Sherlock asked about the letters between Lizzie and Emma. The letters in particular that Lizzie wrote during her European trip and also the letters they had written, any letters they had written since Lizzie returned to the United States in November of 1890, particularly over the previous two weeks. And what Emma tells him is, I've destroyed every letter that Lizzie ever wrote me from the time that she was little. I went away to school for a year and a half and we used to write each other. And there were other occasions when we would write each other, she'd be away or I would be away. And I had a lot of letters from her, but I burned them all. And the reason I did that was I didn't just want to burn the incriminating ones. That would look suspicious. Why don't you have any letters from when Lizzie was abroad? Why don't you have the letters that she wrote you when you were away for two weeks? I thought it made sense for me just to say I never kept any of them. It wasn't my habit. They're all burned. And my understanding is that Lizzie has burned all the letters that I wrote to her that were in any way incriminating or that showed I was aware of what she was up to. What about the letters that Moriarty wrote to her? What about the notes and the letters? Where are they? Lizzie moved them. I don't know where. She took them out of the house before this all happened. She had enough time to get them out of there. Are they with Moriarty? No, I can't believe she's done that. She may be in love with him, but she's still got enough common sense to know that if things go wrong, he could conceivably turn on her and she needs some kind of insurance. So I'm positive, or I would suspect, that she still has them. I just don't know where they went. There must have been a break at this point, or maybe this was the end of their interview. I'm not really sure. I think there was more to it. I think they took a break to eat or a bathroom break or something. Watson makes some notes about siblings and the parallels among the Bordens, the Moriartys, and the Holmes families. There's a big age difference between the oldest Borden, the oldest Moriarty, and the oldest Holmes sibling, and the next. Emma's nine years older than Lizzie. Mycroft is seven years older than Sherlock. The professor was eight or ten years older than Adam. And the oldest plays a supervisory, almost a parental role in all three families. And then the younger sibling is the one who's more prominent, having a higher profile. He thinks it's interesting to see how siblings compete with each other, but as they get older, they also rely on each other for support and for protection. If they get in trouble, they turn to their siblings and say, can you help me? 
here with these three families at various times and in different ways, it was the oldest sibling who had to cover for the younger one. Mycroft had to help Sherlock out financially. He had to make arrangements for him. He had to get things done within the government. He had to get him into treatment. The professor took care of Jabez financially. He got him out of the country after the Whitechapel murders so that he wouldn't get caught. And then Emma is covering and helping Lizzie. Among other things, we know she's giving Moriarty money at Lizzie's request, and presumably she's doing other things to help her. The fact that she didn't go to the police and tell them what she knew, you could say, was a form of help. It was certainly covering for her and protecting her. And we know that sometimes siblings do turn other siblings in. They do have a conscience and they say, I feel some loyalty to the sibling, but that sibling has done something terrible and I can't live with myself unless I go to the police. And I'm thinking of two cases in particular. The Unabomber was turned in by his brother, who recognized some of the political screed, some of the political diatribes that the Unabomber would send or publish. He'd seen that, other writings that his brother had done, and and so he alerted the police. And I think the deal he had with the police was, I'll tell you who he is, you have to agree, you have to promise that you won't seek the death penalty. But he still turned him in. And then there was the Matthew Stewart case in Boston, Matthew Stewart killed his wife and made it look like a robbery, and his brother helped cover it up. But within a few months, his brother felt so guilty that he went to the police, and Matthew Stewart ended up committing suicide before he could be caught and convicted. So Watson's thinking about all this, and it raises a lot of questions in his mind about sibling relationships, conflicting loyalties, and how complicated it can be and how much we tend to rely on our siblings to help us out, especially siblings that are considerably older than we are. So we'll stop there and we'll pick up next time with the narrative. I hope you join me and until then, take care. Mm -hmm.